Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Hello and welcome to another football travel podcast from OutsideRight.com. I'm editor Chris Lee and coming up in this episode... Uh, we're a very small club when you look at the type of clubs that we're playing in the Premier League, but we want to try and get away from that small club mentality and people thinking of us as a small club. And, and like you just said, we're an established uh, Premier League club. We talked to Rob Mitchell, who's commercial director at AFC Bournemouth in the English Premier League. And the match had to be abandoned because uh, revolvers were produced and fired into the air and there was just absolute pandemonium. And we talked to Benjamin Roberts, who's written a book called Gunshots and Goalposts, the story of Northern Irish football. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. So I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Mitchell, who's the commercial director at AFC Bournemouth. Welcome, Rob. Thank you very much for asking me to, to be interviewed. That's, it's a great day down here on the South Coast. So, um, Brief introduce us to yourself and your role at AFC Bournemouth. So I'm Rob Mitchell, I'm Commercial Director at AFC Bournemouth and my role as Commercial Director is to really maximise revenue through various commercial streams including sponsorship, advertising, hospitality and events. Uh, very important job really in the sense that um, the revenue that football clubs generate it helps to fund the business and uh, player transfers which is uh, quite a challenge and an important task in, in the Premier League. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's a very enjoyable job. I've been at the club for over nine years now mm. and seen the club rise from, from League Two to the Premier League. Well, exactly, you've had that meteoric rise. You're established now as a mid-table Premier League club, but these are un- uncharted heights for the club, so what is behind that meteoric rise? Well, Eddie Howell, our manager, has been a, a big focus of that, but also the, the leadership of the club and the ownership of the club as well. Um, We've got that, uh, that the balance of uh, a great football manager, uh, some players that are um, that a lot of players have come through from from League Two and League One with us as well, uh, and uh, say good leadership from the top. So uh, we're a very small club when you look at the type of clubs that we're playing in the Premier League. But we want to try and get away from that small club mentality and people thinking of us as a small club. And, and like you just said, we're an established uh, Premier League club. So what's the catchment area for the club now that Southampton is your nearest serious rival here on the south coast? Well, admittedly, the, 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 the catchment area is still very much Dorset-based. Um, we, have a, we have supporters that live out of Dorset, perhaps they've grown up in Bournemouth and hooked in as supporters of the club, but then had to move away for various reasons. Um, we are picking up on an international following now with um, a lot of American supporters that are now following the club. Yeah. I think Americans tend to like an underdog and the fact that we... We've come from League Two to the Premier League. It's a it's a very much a fairy tale story. Uh-huh. Uh, we've also got an American part owner of the club as well, uh, and we've done a couple of pre-season uh, training camps out in America as well the last couple of years, which in itself has generated some interest uh, from people over in the states. And when we look at our retail sales, we can see that our kits are not are just being distributed and posted around Dorset, but internationally as well. Uh, so as a club, we really want to try and grow our fan base not only domestically but also overseas as well. And talking of uh, growing, you've, you've been at Dean Court, which has capacity less than 12,000 since 1910. There's been a lot of talk of a new ground. Are you able to give anything on that, or is it very hush-hush? At the moment, it's very confidential. Uh, all I can say is the club are working very hard to, to look at the opportunity to have a new stadium. Um, we've got demand for people that want to buy tickets, and from a commercial side, I know there's certainly a lot of people uh, calling up the commercial department and contacting us and speaking to us about hospitality and executive boxes which which we just don't have to sell at the moment and mm. I mentioned earlier about the importance of financing football and we, we want to make sure we're maximising revenue and to do that we, we are hopefully going to have a stadium with a bigger capacity. And for those visiting fans that are coming, what are your, your tips for a trip for AFC Bournemouth? Well Bournemouth is a stunning place, Dorset is a stunning place and uh, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the top away days for fans, uh, it's a great place to come and stay. 
and lots to do in the area and uh, the only thing again we've got very small capacity for away fans so I know for some of the bigger clubs it's a really strict uh, points policy uh, that, to, that allows them to, to buy tickets or not but, uh, but yeah we tend to find that supporters that come down here do stay for the weekend so it's great for the area for the economy and hotels and restaurants and that. Brilliant and where can people connect with you online finally? Um, so the football club, afcb.co.uk, uh, people can contact me on uh, email or find me on LinkedIn. My email is rob.mitchell at afcb.co.uk or find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Rob. Thank you very much. The Outside Right podcast. I'm joined by Ben Roberts, who's written a book on the story of football in Northern Ireland. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Chris. Briefly introduce yourself then to us. Uh, so yeah, I'm Benjamin Roberts, as you say. Um, I do sound very English for somebody that's written a book on Irish and Northern Irish football. Um, I have Northern Irish father who was born in Lisburn, just outside of Belfast, and uh, grandparents from East Belfast, and can trace my family back to the northern part of Ireland to probably somewhere in the middle of the 18th century. And uh, and this is what inspired you to write this book, is it Gunshots and Goalposts, the story of Northern Irish football? That's correct. It's always been something that I've I've had, um, uh, you know, the seed of an idea for. And then I was at a symposium last year um, for uh, the book that Mark Perryman has edited, uh, 1966 and all that, about the English game and the the, the World Cup um, of that year. And, and, and it's really a look at everything else that was going on in that year as well as as well as a look at the tournament itself um, and I just considered that actually very little had been written about football and Northern Ireland and, and what a rich vein of, of history and football and footballing history that could be um, so I, I wrote a, a sort of fairly long blog post outlining some of the key incidents and that was quite well received over the course of uh, the Euros last year, and that's morphed into a full-length book. Fantastic. And um, so, how did it begin then? Let's start right at the beginning. How did football take off in in Northern Ireland? Of course, it wasn't at the time that you, we were talking about here. It, there was just one island of Ireland, wasn't it? it wasn't partitioned at that. Point. That's quite right. Um, I mean, we're talking about forty years probably before Ireland was partitioned. Um, so, the the most widely accepted, um, and I think the the narrative that that I understand to be true is that um, there was a, a, a guy called John McAlary um, who owned a gentleman's outfitters in Belfast and he um, took his honeymoon in Scotland and he watched a game of football while he was in Scotland. It seems likely that he'd probably been aware of the game of football from previous trips to Scotland but on this particular trip on his honeymoon which I don't know what it says about how well his honeymoon went that he had time to go and watch the football, but uh, he he went and saw a couple of teams play Queen's Park and Caledonians, I think, and invited them over to Belfast um, to play an exhibition match. Um, and they came over not too long after that and played a match uh, at the Ulster Cricket Grounds. And um, I think about a thousand people are said to have gone along, um, quite what they thought they were going along to, although quite a few of them probably were Scottish themselves. And that began the process of the popularisation of the sport in, in Ireland and particularly in Ulster. Um, and it's, it's quite clear that um, football uh, was a game that, that was imported to Ireland through Ulster and, and then spread out from Ulster, um, whereas some other games, um, rugby, cricket perhaps, uh, tended to be more popular in Dublin 
um, and in the universities and and spread through through private schools and public schools in that way. Um, whereas football, although it did rely on on a, a people of a certain status and income um, in the early stages, had a different way into the island of Ireland. Okay, and how did that compete with the the local Gaelic football? How did they get on? It's it's quite interesting actually to to look at that the the Irish um, Football Association came into existence um, in 1880, um, so just a couple of years after the first widely accepted game of association football had been played in Ireland. Um, and then a few years later, um, the Gaelic Athletic Association was formed, and and really that was because they saw that the proponents of, of this British game um, were getting their ducks in a row and getting things organised and the, the Irish Cup um, had started. So the Irish Cup was was seen as cup competitions were um, in England, Scotland, as a as a good way of, of popularising a sport at the time because it, it had that element of, of jeopardy, you know, a, knock, a knockout competition. So the Gaelic Athletic Association could see that this British game was becoming popular and that they needed to codify their own sport. So there was quite fierce rivalry between between the two competing codes of Gaelic football and association football, um, particularly when for a large part of the end of the 19th century and into the early 70s, uh, early 1970s, for um, large parts of that time, it was forbidden if you were a, a Gaelic player to partake in the association game. Um, or, or even to, to go to a stadium and watch a game of association football if you were a member of the GAA. How strictly that was enforced varied from county to county and from town to town, but it, but it certainly made life difficult, especially for some players that, that we would um, know the names of um, in, in medium-term history. People like Pat Jennings and others often discovered the game or started playing the game of association football when they were serving um, bans um, from Gaelic football. You can still kind of see the split between the, the Gaelic um, rules and, and the, the sort of English um, football codes in, in the two stadiums in Dublin where you've got Croke Park, which is for the Gaelic Athletics um, Association games, so like hurling and football. And then you've got the Lansdowne Roadstroke Aviva, um, where rugby and football yes. is typically yeah. played. So we can't really talk about Northern Ireland. It's kind of you can't really escape sectarianism. So what impact has that had over the years, and has that changed since the Good Friday Agreement in uh, 1998? Uh, uh, let's let's start with with before the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so so there was two major the major avatars of of either side of the sectarian divide. So you had. Linfield, who still exists today, who were the, the Protestant Unionist club in Belfast, um, formed of linen workers in, in the late 1880s. And then you had Belfast Celtic formed about five years later uh, with the aid of a grant from their Glasgow namesake. And by the end of the 19th century, it was a, quite an accurate barometer of a man's religion was to to look at which club he supported um and certainly the singing of what would be called party tunes um sectarian songs was was commonplace by that by that time and linfield if you look back uh, through some of the records as as i've done linfield had uh, no catholic players in 1900 and belfast celtic 
had uh, uh, just one Protestant player, um, although uh, neither side officially had had a bar on on whether they could play Catholics or, or Protestants. Belfast Celtic did um, have a number of Protestant players, as I'll touch on in a in a few moments. But it, the first really major clash um, between those two sides, they played each other a lot, and there was a lot of badinage and, and, and ill feeling. But the, the major clash was in 1912, um, which was a, a very key year in Belfast um, at, around the time that this match was played it was it was four or five months after the Titanic had sunk mm. Titanic was obviously built in 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 Belfast and was a source of a huge amount of pride for people particularly Protestants in and around Belfast who worked in the shipyards and even if you didn't work in the shipyards you you might have worked in a sort of ancillary industry so um but there was also the the looming threat as as unionists saw it of um of home rule um that that was the source of of a lot of fear from unionists a lot of excitement um from the nationalist community um and so a couple of weeks before uh, the Ulster Day and the signing of the Ulster Covenant, Belfast Celtic um, played Linfield at Belfast Celtic's ground in, in West Belfast. And, and the match didn't actually reach its conclusion. The match had to be abandoned um, because, because of uh, revolvers were produced and fired into the air and there was just absolute pandemonium. Um, it was something that the players were fairly used to and, and a lot of this happened uh, during half time and the, the referee said well there's no way that this can possibly continue um he was from stockport mm. and the players kind of said to him well you know um we're, we're kind of used to a bit of, bit of this and uh, and and they were happy to go back out but ultimately the match couldn't continue a uh, gun was fired into the air and uh kind of spilled out onto the streets afterwards and and it was it was a, a pretty big deal and and it considered that this was probably stirred up by Edward Carson who was the the leader of the unionists um in in Ulster at the time mm. um and he he wanted to to kind of prove a point to say that we can make this this place ungovernable we can make this place really difficult um if you politicians in in England go against what we want. So a couple of weeks later, there was the Ulster Day, the signing of the Ulster Covenant. So nearly a quarter of a million men and a quarter of a million women, um, including my great-grandparents, um, signed Ulster's Solemn League and Covenant, which which kind of pledged uncompromising opposition um, to the Home Rule Bill that was before Parliament, which was ultimately what led to, to the partition of Ireland about a decade later. So just for those who aren't familiar with the story, this the proposal was for the entire island of Ireland to be to have home rule and the, the particular area rebelled against that with this covenant? Yes. Um there was there was some provision that there there could be a separate parliament in the north. Whether that would have been enacted or not, we'll never know because of course the, the First World War intervened and and both nationalists and unionists fought alongside each other um, during that conflict and then the 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 mood had changed after the first world war so most nationalists or let's say a lot of nationalists before um, the great war were happy for a kind of form of home rule that that was still uh, under the british crown 
Um, but, you know, they'd have a parliament in Dublin, but that, that parliament would still have its allegiance um, to the king. And uh, after the war had ended, Sinn Féin had, had become uh, much more popular than the Irish Parliamentary Party. And the, the mood was more for a, a pure reform of home rule that bore no allegiance um, to the crown, which was even less acceptable um, to unionists, um, which resulted in uh, the Liberal Party deciding that for the time being, at least, there would have to be uh, two parliaments in Ireland, one in the north and one um, in Dublin. And that hopefully over time, perhaps a couple of decades um, those two parliaments could could be made into one. Um, it was seen as a, a temporary thing. Um, the border was seen as a temporary thing, um, which we obviously know now, uh, hundred odd years on. It wasn't. Mm. So there was a, a few matches that were played against the backdrop of that, again between Belfast Celtic, but this time against Glen Torren. There was one in March 1919 um, and another in March 1920 um, where guns came out again, a man fired a revolver um, into the crowd and actually Belfast Celtic, because because of their sort of position as a, a lightning rod for the sort of enmity of, of unionists at the time, actually went out of the, the Irish League um, for four years between 1920 and 1924. Um, and by the time they came back, to the Irish League in 1924, Ireland had been partitioned. So you had the Irish League, which is the name of the competition in by now Northern Ireland. But now you also had the League of Ireland, which was the name of the competition in what was then the Irish Free State, mm. uh, what, what we would know now as the Republic of Ireland. So there were some clubs in uh, Ulster, um, in the in the six, particularly the six counties of of Ulster that that had become uh, Northern Ireland, who wanted to their sympathies were with um, the Parliament in Dublin and with uh, the League of Ireland and the Football Association of the Irish Free State. There was a league in West Belfast, the Fools League, um, that that was under the auspices of uh, the Football Association of Ireland. Um, and remained so for a few years. There was this sort of three, four-year period um, where there was there was clubs in the north that were members of the IFA, but some that were members of the FAI. The the Football Association uh, of Ireland wanted to be able to be fully recognised and and play to be able to play matches against France and Italy and, and, and so on. And as part of their agreement with FIFA, they had to relinquish um, control of, of any of the, the teams um, that were in the borders of Northern Ireland. Um, but by, by about the mid-1920s, it was safe enough um, for Belfast Celtic to come back into the game. And they really saw quite a period of, of success after that, it was a pretty difficult time for Linfield. I think in 1927 they they finished second from bottom of the Irish League, um, but but it was a real period of ascendancy for Belfast Celtic. Belfast Celtic don't exist anymore, so they went out of the game in 1948. There was a, a match on Boxing Day 1948 with Linfield. Um, Belfast Celtic had uh, a Protestant player. Um, by the name of Jimmy Jones, whose cousin or uncle um, had been a Linfield player 
um, but he'd, for whatever reason, turned out to turned out for Belfast Celtic. And at the end of that game on Boxing Day 1948, um, he was leaving the pitch and his leg was was broken by uh, well people that were at least purporting to be fans of Linfield. And this was the major contributory factor to to Belfast the directors from Belfast Celtic deciding to withdraw from from the game at the end of that season. So Belfast Celtic went out of the game in 1949. There was some question about whether they would come back. The the ground it had a, also had a dog track, so it was used for the dogs until the 80s. So there was always a, a vague hope from for many that they might come back into the game, um, but they didn't. So you you have Belfast Celtic going out of of the game entirely you had Derry City who um, as the troubles kind of lit up in the late 60s and early 70s their games with Linfield um, and other um, other teams Ballymena, Glentoran um, became the the site of a lot of trouble and uh, and obviously Derry City's ground um, is in the bog side of Derry which for those not aware is is a nationalist stronghold within Derry, which is which is a fairly nationalist um, city in and of itself. So uh, opposition teams were were uncomfortable um, about travelling there, and the security forces and the RUC um, at various times were were uncomfortable about having games staged there, and it was decided that uh, that Derry would have to play their home games. Um, in cold rain, which was quite a trek for for the fans. The train links in that that part of the country are, are not particularly great, and and the club just didn't consider it viable. And they they left the Irish League in in the middle of the 1972-3 season um, and disappeared from the game in any senior level until they were allowed to join the League of Ireland in 1985, and I think remain to this day. Um, the only club to play in the league outside of the formal political jurisdiction of, of the country that they're actually um, legally based in. So you you had um, Belfast Celtic going out of the game, Derry City going out of the Irish League and eventually joining the League of Ireland. Around the late 70s, you had um, Cliftonville, um, who are a team based in North Belfast, who weren't one of the biggest or most well-supported Irish League clubs, um, although they were the, the first Irish League club. They they had come out of uh, John McAleary's cricket club um, that he was treasurer of in, in the late 1870s. Um, they were most famous, actually, for remaining a completely amateur side who wouldn't pay players until... Um, the early 70s but by the late 70s the demographics of the lower Cliftonville Road and the surrounding area where Cliftonville's solitude ground is had changed and the area had gone from being um, a fairly unionist Protestant area to a, a far more Catholic area and it was just a reflection of of how other parts of Belfast were changing and people were being displaced from one part of Belfast and having to move to another part. But what that meant was that there was a, a huge inflow of Catholics to the area and a huge outflow of Protestants. And, and that meant that um, the support of Cliftonville changed and, and actually towards the end of the 70s, the team developed quite a hard core of support um, known as the Red Army. Um, who were quite fanatical um, in their support of Cliftonville, followed them home and away 
and uh, and that witnessed some spectacular clashes with with loyalists and Linfield fans and fans of other um, teams that might be closely associated with Protestantism and Coleraine, Porterdown. The RUC decreed in 1970 that it wasn't safe. That's the Royal Ulster Constabulary, right? Yes, that's correct. The police force of Northern Ireland. Yes, yes. At the time. At the time, yes. Um, so in, in 1970, it had been decided that that Linfield and its fans couldn't safely um, travel from from South Belfast and and from the Shankill to Solitude in North Belfast. So between 1970 and 1998, um, all of Cliftonville's home games, inverted commas there, against Linfield were actually played at Linfield's ground, um, which is also the ground that Northern Ireland used. Mm. Um, at Windsor Park, but it was it was decided in in 1998. So we're we're just post Good Friday Agreement. Um, the peace process has just started to kick in. Um, the last IRA ceasefire has has been in place for about a year, um, and and it's finally decided that perhaps uh, Cliftonville can host Linfield again. So so that 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 was the good Saturday agreement, if you like, um, of, of Northern Irish football, a certain sort of rapprochement. And, and actually, you can see that fans of both clubs were quite unhappy, had been quite unhappy with Cliftonville not being able to host a game for, for a good four or five years um, before that. Mm-hmm. But it was the, the security services that, that were the, the holdout. Um, and I, I think you know, the peace process was and is supposed to lead to the, the normalisation, mm. um, such as it is, of, of life in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and this was seen as a, a good indicator of, of normal life and, and how normal life should be. You don't have um, major 30 years of not being able to use your home ground in, in the English first division. You know, it wouldn't have mm. been seen seen as, as right or fair. Um, I mean, it kind of brings us on quite handily to, to what it's like nowadays in terms of as a visitor going to, to Northern Ireland to watch the... Uh, the Irish League. So, what would I mean? What would your tips be? Who are the big teams? Uh, what are the best atmospheres, etc.? And how do you get around? And is it, and going back to your previous point, is it do, do they get quite tasty, or is it perfectly safe now? It, it's certainly nothing like how it used to be. Um, you'll probably still hear things and and see flags and and things that you wouldn't see. You definitely wouldn't see in England, and mm. wouldn't see in most Scottish grounds. I, I went to to a, a game as as quite a young boy on Boxing Day. Uh, I think it was either 1994 or 1995 between Linfield and Glentoran, um, who are both Belfast teams, both uh, Unionist teams. One um, drawing its support largely from the Shankill in Linfield and Glentoran, based in East Belfast, which draws its support from that part of the city. And and even though they were ostensibly both on the, the same side of the political divide, um, it was probably the most sort of tasty atmosphere at a football game that I've ever witnessed. And it's still a fierce rivalry to this day. Um, but broadly speaking, the games are a lot safer than, than they were 20, 30 years ago. The, the Irish League retains a, a, a much more working class character than, than football does in England um, these days um, and that's partly because the the quality is 
a lot lower. It's it's a semi-professional league, so almost none of these players are, are they're earning some money from the game, um, but but it's not their their only source of income. Um, there's domestic price cap of ten pounds, so it's cheaper to go to a game in the Irish league if if you live over there than it would be to go and watch a sixth tier game in England. Um, Absolutely, I live fairly near Brighton. And uh, I know when I go with my brother to watch Whitehawk, it costs us twelve pounds to watch to watch a game um, in the National League South. Um, so it's it's a bit cheaper than that for for people who were perhaps thinking of making a, a a weekend of it. So almost all of the Irish League games take place on a Saturday. It was only a, a few years ago that it was the rules were changed that games can take place on Sundays in Northern Ireland now. Um, but it's still the case that most clubs choose not to play on the Sabbath and Linfield actually have as one of their, their sort of rules and regulations that they, they won't permit a game on a Sunday. Um, so the two clubs have to, to agree. So most games are still on Saturdays. However, um, because of uh, the, the sort of geography of, of where some of the League of Ireland clubs are, um, it, it would be entirely possible if you did your planning and played your cards right that you could watch an Irish league game on a Saturday afternoon and a League of Ireland game in Derry or Dundalk, um, which are not long journeys uh, by any stretch of the imagination from Belfast. On the Sunday, most League of Ireland games um, take place on either Friday evenings or Sunday afternoons. So it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility to, to get three games in in a less than 48 hour stretch perfect and it's only 10 pounds to get in in the irish league yes i'm not sure what the uh whether there's such a price cap in the league of ireland but i can't imagine it's uh, a lot more brilliant well thanks so much for that it's really insightful um and and definitely something on conspicuous absence on my cv i haven't actually been to any association football games in ireland i've been to gaelic football so um, where can people connect with you then online uh so you can find me on Twitter at Benja Mark R. That's B E N J A Mark R. Um, you can find my writing at polyfootmedia.com. P O L I footmedia.com. Uh, you can also pre order the book there. It's out in about, I don't know when this is going to go out, but let's say in okay, about. It's be available on the 29th of August, isn't yes, it? Yes, um, 29th of August. 2017. Um, so a lot of you, probably by the time a lot of the people listening to this, it will be will become available because we're going live on the 1st of August. So anyone listening, listening after that, uh, Gunshots and Goalposts, Story of Northern Irish Football is available where? Uh, so you can pre-order that through my website, polyfootmedia.com. You can use the code uh, OW1. Um, to get a pound off the paperback or you can buy the ebook um, for 2.99 from my website or you can search for it on amazon or google where it's available for 3.99 i've managed to get through some of it myself um and it's absolutely fascinating read especially people who have an interest in ireland so uh, thanks so much ben uh, it's been my pleasure thanks for tuning in if you'd like to follow us on facebook twitter or Instagram, we're at Outside Right, W-R-I-T-E. And you can find us online at OutsideRight.com or .co.uk. Until next time, thanks for listening.